Okay, so the, just to let you know, the, the reason I'm recording this is... Hey, come on in. No, you're right on time, actually. Uh, the reason I'm recording this is there's an individual who I don't think is going to make it today, but um, he's going to do a critique of this class for me. So I'm basically just going to videotape it and send it to him. I don't have to turn this like, last semester or turn it in, and all your backs of your heads would be, you know, being graded. All being graded. Yeah. So it's nothing like that, but uh, just so you're, if you're wondering why it's that. Well, thanks for being here. Um, we are talking today possibly about some Hebrew, but um, much more than that, we're going to talk about the plans of God, and so what we're going to focus on, for the most part, is Jeremiah 29.11. Anybody know that? Can anybody rattle that off? It's on the board. I mean, it's right here, but uh, can anybody rattle it off in English, maybe? No? I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, and et cetera, et cetera, and so on. Um, So that's what we're going to focus on today. We're actually going to go through... Jeremiah chapter 29 leading up to that verse and um, see if maybe that changes the way that we understand that verse or maybe it influences how we, we think about verses like that. So, hey, come on in. So, before we start, before we do anything, if I could have a volunteer pray for us. Just bless our time and then we'll get started. Don't make me pray. I'll pray. Very true for Lord, I think for this day is that we can join each other in fellowship and learning something new, and just having Steve share knowledge with us and just share something new with us. Please just guide us in understanding and have some fun while doing it. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, sir. So, a lot of times when I hear this verse talked about or verses similar to it when they talk about the plans of God... Sometimes it's in the context of someone basically promising you something that either you don't have and they think that God has entitled you to have it, or maybe they have some ulterior motives, perhaps. I would hate to suggest such a thing, but uh, it comes along, something along the lines of a televangelist or a preacher saying, you can have, if you just believe that this is true, that God has these plans for your life, God told you that he has good plans for you. He wants you to have a good job. He wants you to have a good car. He wants you to have a beautiful wife or successful husband. God wants good things for you if you would only believe that he wants these good things for you. And that's all you need to do is to believe and to trust that that's what God wants for you and it's yours. That often goes by the the sort of name it and claim it. People will talk about name it and claim it theology. That's kind of the way it sounds sometimes. So, when you hear something like Jeremiah 29, 11, obviously out of context, and that's part of the reason why we're here today, is to talk about verses like this. But when you hear it just the way you've probably been hearing it your whole life, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good, not for evil. Plans for a future and a hope. What, what do you think that means, just off the top of your head, or what have you assumed that that meant? Or what questions, maybe, does that verse bring to you hearing it right now? I think uh, younger, um, growing up junior high, I remember discussion sometimes went the direction of like predestination or something like that, like predestination okay. these things to specific paths in life. Um, that didn't make as much sense to me. 
I was really just thought it was just kind of God's general heart, not necessarily what he's going to do, and he's got this plan, but just this is how I feel about you, and that's how I always done it. Sure. Okay, so it's more of a general, overarching yeah. statement. Yeah, I just see it. Okay. Any thoughts about that? Yes, I've had, um, I've talked about this first with people, and it, it kind of comes down to, like, a, does God have a specific plan, or does he, is he more talking in general? Like, it comes to the predestination thing, like, well, yeah, he has a plan, but when you have free will, and he's choosing, you're choosing, but then, like, does he know the choices you're going to make, or are those, like, predestined in the plan, too? Or, like, um, but I guess more recently, I've just thought of it as, like, well, he's, like, if he's speaking to Jeremiah, like, is he just, are we supposed to apply it to ourselves, or is he just saying, like, to you, like, I have this mission for you as a prophet. So, like, within that plan, he knows that, but he doesn't know specifically what exactly is going to happen. But that's how I thought so it might be something that's that was specific to Jeremiah yeah. while he was writing it in yeah. 500 BC or mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Good. This is excellent. Any other thoughts? Just, I mean, is this a verse that's familiar to most people? I think you've probably heard it in various contexts. Yeah. yeah. Most of it's like you said, though. Most of the time it's referenced to some kind of fortune thing. Yeah. Yeah. You will be prosperous. You will be. You will. And this is this is here. Well, part of the reason why this has been a this has been one of the verses that I've gravitated, gravitated towards as I've been in seminary and have kind of been learning more about how we study the Bible and how, how people, scholars and, and so forth, will approach the scriptures from kind of a different perspective and sort of letting the scripture speak for itself before we try to impose what we think it means on top of it. Um, so what I want to do today is basically that. We're going to go through Jeremiah 29, and we'll probably only go through verses 1 to 14, because 11 to 14 are kind of a unit of their own. Um, the whole unit is actually Jeremiah in 29. It goes from 1 to verse 23. We probably won't have time to hit the, the back end of that, but I think we're going to get what we need. But what I want to do is kind of just break this unit of 14 verses up into like maybe three chunks. And we'll go through a chunk of a few verses, and then we'll talk about you know, if we're kind of going to kind of approach it from almost like a, a, a journalistic perspective in the sense of let's ask some basic questions about what's going on here. Let's ask who, who is this being written to? Why is it being written? What are they saying that maybe doesn't deal directly with this verse, but what are they saying before and after that? Can we put this verse into maybe some, some deeper context? So that's all I want to do today. Um, if you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up to Jeremiah 29. And then my first unit was verses 1 to 4. Someone would be so kind as to read those four verses, and I will have a couple follow-up questions for you. So um, when you're done reading, you're not necessarily off the hook yet. FYI. A brave, adventurous soul. Oh, Julian. I knew it, I knew it, man. I can well, you can't be. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah 
and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judea, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay. Well done, sir. That was, I did not know I was getting into that. <laughs> well, yeah, you got the introduction to these things is always filled with light of names that we have not used in 2,000 years. So, well done. So, my question to you, having just read that, what, what's going on here? We, we've got this. It says, in my version, now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the someone said word. So we're reading a letter. Who's writing this letter? Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah. Okay. And who is he sending it to? Exiles. All the exiles. Exiles. Okay, so these are people... These are, he says he's writing the exiles. What he's saying there is these are people who lived in Jerusalem, lived in the southern half of Israel at one point. And then after Jerusalem was sieged, okay, in 597 B.C. by the Babylonians. At that point, most of the people living in Jerusalem were taken out of Jerusalem and led to Babylon. There's a few people still in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is one of those people. So Jeremiah is writing this letter to all of these people who were exiled, people who used to live in Jerusalem, now they don't. So he's, so he's writing this letter to the exiles. Is he addressing it to anyone other than, like, who specifically is he addressing this letter to, though? We're given some specifics. The elders who were carried away captive. Okay, so the elders, or the, the people who are, have taken a senior role in, such as it is, the leadership of these, of these people. The priests and the prophets. Okay, so re religious leaders. So we have the sort of the secular leaders, the religious leaders. Is there anybody else listed? All the people. All the people, all yeah. The people. Yeah, he, he narrows it down, but at the end of it, it is all of the exiles that, that he's writing to. We learned a couple other things, too. It was, we're actually given the specific names of people who carried this letter. So Jeremiah 29... Keep in mind, these people aren't carrying the entire book of Jeremiah or the scroll of Jeremiah. They're carrying a, a letter that's basically in chapter 29. And chapter 29 then became part of Jeremiah later on. So Jeremiah incorporated this letter that he wrote into a bunch of other stuff that he wrote. And that's how we got the scroll of Jeremiah. So, and he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. So, Jeremiah is writing the letter. Who's, whose words are we about to read about? God. Yeah, supposedly these are, this is like thus saith the Lord kind of stuff. This isn't where, a couple quick notes on, on history before we move on to this. When we read scripture, there's a couple criteria, actually several criteria that scholars will use to say, well, is this, how dependable, how dependable is this scripture that we're reading? Like how how much confidence do we have if this is something historical that Jeremiah actually wrote? One of the criteria is that there's details in the scripture that don't need to be there. And that's what we have. And we, he names these, these two messengers who are going to carry this letter over to Babylon. Well, we don't need to know their names. Who cares what their names are? We have no idea who these people were. 
but that detail is given to us. And that, to a lot of scholars, lends legitimacy to a scripture to say, well, we have these, all these like, kind of secondary details. Why would, if somebody was just going to make this up from nothing, why would they put this in? There's no, there's no real reason why you would do that. So the, one of the other things, if you remember in some of Paul's letters, especially where he gets really fired up, and he'll say, he'll say some things. He'll say, the Lord has spoken to me in this way. And then sometimes he'll say, well, this is me talking. This is me talking, not God. And he'll say something. Paul was, we would kind of wish he would have done it more, to be honest. But um, <laughs> Paul did sometimes make a distinction between when it was sort of the word of the Lord being delivered to you and when it's just, hey, this is me, Paul, just kind of saying what I think. And Paul thought a lot. So that's why we kind of would, we, Paul, if you're up there, dude, really. Could have clarified some things for us. Um, okay, so we set the context of what we're reading. We're reading a letter, who it's being addressed to. So Jeremiah living in Jerusalem, writing these exiles. Now he's he's saying, here comes God's word to you, and here's what he's going to say. So let's read, let's see, verses 4. We'll, we'll, we'll read 4 again. We'll go from 4 to 7. So anyone can tackle that one. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because of its pros prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you, dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them to the first word. Awesome. So somebody summarize 4 to 7. What, if you just had to kind of summarize what's going on there, how would you, how would you do that? Pretty much the same way. Live life as if you're not in exile. Yeah. Keep living. Change don't take them. In, don't take yeah. on their customs and things like that. Don't listen to them, but live and with them. Okay, and that's you actually hit on an interesting point there because some people it talks about here in, in eight and nine they talk about prophets. Some people identify that as as being the people of Babylon and their prophets. Some people, actually, most scholars identify that as being the prophets of Israel. The prophets who they were exiled with, who were, and we'll get to that in a second, but that's, you hit on a very good point there because people debate who those prophets really, really are that they're not supposed to be listening to. Yeah, so, so, thus does the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who is it that sent, if we read by, by this letter or by the scripture, who, who is it who? exiled these people? Who, was it, who took them away from the land that God promised them? God did. Oh. Nebuchadnezzar did. In the letter, God is saying, I did this. Mm -hmm. Which is an interesting, kind of an interesting thought when we're talking about the plans of God. The plan of God all along has been for the people of Israel to be in their promised land. Like That's the whole point of this whole covenant thing that they're supposed to be in. And now God's saying, um, yeah, I did this. I'm the one who took you out of your land. So when we're talking about the plans of God here in a few verses, it's something to keep in mind is that this situation they find themselves in, 
it's it's not God's quote fault. God is doing this for a purpose. If we read other scriptures, but at the end, God is claiming sort of responsibility for this. Which, and then yeah, it's, it says build houses, take wives, become fathers, seek the welfare of the city. So, pray to the Lord on its behalf. If you were to read other places in Jeremiah and in Isaiah, when it talks about Babylon, it's almost always God sort of pointing his finger at Babylon and saying, you are going down, I'm going to burn you, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now we have God saying, I want you to pray for this place. I want you to actually like, contribute to society, basically, in a positive way. I want you to sort of treat this like you would treat your own home. Which kind of leads nicely into verses 8 to 10. So anyone wants to tackle those, we read a couple of them already. Gave us some good context there. But 8 to 10, does somebody want to tackle those? Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. So we, we talked a little bit about these prophets. God saying, don't listen to these prophets. Let's assume for a minute that these are that these are the prophets of Israel. These are prophets that were the letter is being addressed to priests, prophets. Let's let's assume that these are the same prophets that are now being talked about. And he says, Don't let your prophets who are in your midst deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams. Knowing what we already know about this passage, what do you think these prophets were trying to say? Why is God encouraging these people not to listen to them? Okay, so maybe they were saying they sort of a pessimistic view. Any other thoughts on what these prophets might have been trying to tell them? Maybe like rebel against their own king or against like or who was it, Zedekiah or uh, Oh Zedekiah, Zedekiah. Just Zedekiah. like I mean, I would think if you're in exile there, your natural response would be like not to contribute to society. Like, to, it's just like it's Babylon. Um, but uh, that's what I would assume they would say. Okay. Where it says um, a little earlier, um, do not let the prophets and the writers among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Almost like prophets are telling the people exactly what they are wanting to hear, kind of like this is the talk and the prophets confirm it who's not playing into like a man who gives many gifts, as many friends, like if you prophesy exactly what everyone's feeling well, that makes you stand out and is there significance to that statement? because it's usually, don't listen to the dreams that they tell you to have, not that you tell them well, you might, you might be onto something there with the uh, the motivate maybe the, these prophets have a motivation other than I would think so. Yeah. Any other thoughts about these guys? Because this is kind of this is kind of kind of a key point. I think about. Go ahead. Sorry, like anthropologically, if a culture is in a different place, the tendency wouldn't be to continue on your lineage necessarily, or so about keeping to you know marry and procreate maybe the other prophets are saying no we're in exile we don't want to be we need to be more guarded or take care of ourselves instead of 
continuing to expand because they're in exile, presumably they're not in favorable conditions for their own subculture. So maybe that's what prophets would be saying is don't live your life normally or don't contribute to society or don't even continue the subculture. Okay, yeah, that's a good, that's an excellent point. Maggie, you had something. Um, well, the way that these, they call them the dreams and that they're diviners, and I don't know exactly historically what a, divi a diviner, am I even saying that right? What, yeah, I mean, but it kind of it yeah. kind of sounds like um, people who might be like fantasizing almost. So maybe mm -hmm. like the like health and wealth gospel almost in a sense. But uh, like like don't listen to these people that are, that are saying or we don't have to work or we don't have to put down roots here because God. I mean I'm I don't know. Maybe that's fully totally off base. I'm not even sure if I'm explaining that right. But just that these people were. Um, saying like lies like this isn't what God would this is not where God would have us or something like that just trying to sugarcoat things or fantasize about why they might be there and that's everybody's hit, kind of hitting right around where I wanted you guys to be I'm, if I can do this easily I'm going to flip this around there's one key well except that's a felt word never mind <laughs> Had I known that, I would have written smaller. I'm going to write one word on here. You can read that pretty fast. Yeah, it took me, what, 20 minutes to do it? I'm better at reading it than I am writing it, let's say that. One word from this passage. Increase. There's a significance to that word that a Jewish mind would pick up on pretty much right away. Can you think of another scripture off the top of your head where people are commanded to increase? Genesis 1. Genesis. Okay. Adam and Eve, go multiply, fill the earth. Uh-huh. Remember the Exodus where... When the book of Exodus begins, it says that the people had multiplied and had greatly increased in the land. This word increase is pervasive throughout the Old Testament. What a Jewish mind would have picked up on, what these exiles, who are of course Jewish, would have picked up on if this letter is being sent to, is covenant language. There are certain key words when, when they pop up, the Jewish mind immediately goes back to covenant. And this is a big one. So by God saying to these people, I want you to increase, not decrease. Land, it's kind of like what you said. Is don't be pessimistic. Don't, don't just kind of let yourselves dwindle down to nothing because you think that all hope is gone. That's not the kind of God I am. All along, God is kind of leading them. He's kind of baiting them towards 2911 to 14 where he says, it was my plan that I took you from the, the land as I told you I was going to, and I put you over Babylon. But this isn't forever. I think it's verse 10, he says it's 70 years. But this, when he throws words in like increase, that's going to remind them of the covenant that God has made with these people. It's like, I have not abandoned you. I want you to go to the land. I want you to increase because that's what our covenant is based upon, your prosperity. So, we, you know, it's, it's funny because this kind of health and wealth gospel, it's, it takes something that's like 90% true and it just kind of twists it to where it's 10% not. 
You know what I mean? Like God is, God is for us. God is for his people, specifically Israel and Jeremiah. God wants them to prosper. He wants them to increase, but it's, it's according to his plan. Now we get to the 70 years thing. So let me lay this on you. So Jer uh, Jerusalem is sieged in 597. This letter, most scholars believe that this letter that we're reading today was written in 594. So it's three years after. After he writes this, and later on in the letter, he's basically going to say Jerusalem is going to fall. Well, Jerusalem does fall in 587, 586 B.C. to the Babylonians for good. Now we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, and they come back after the Persians take over Babylon. Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back, they rebuild the temple, and they start to move all the exiles back into the land. That was, most people believe the temple was done in 516 B.C. So how many years is it from 586 to 516? 70. 70 years. What did he just say in the letter? How long is it going to be? 70 years. So what we're seeing here, this is another criteria that we use of, especially with the prophetic more than any other, is, is what this prophet's saying lining up with what we now know in hindsight was history. You know, this person throws out a, a, a timeline for something to happen. Well, did something that, at least conceivably, that could have fulfilled that prophecy happen in that timeline? What we see in this case, it's, it's like dead on. So that's another criteria that we use when we, when we look at Scripture from a purely objective point of view and we say, well, is this, is this lining up with history? And it is. There's one other thing I want to talk about here. Yeah, okay, so we're getting ready to talk about God's plans, or we have been talking about it. Is it clear to everybody that God is using, he's using, like, physical circumstances to achieve his plan. In other words, we have this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, who rules this nation-state, Babylon, who has come and, for, for very political, secular reasons, has conquered Jerusalem more than once, and now he's kicking their people out of the land. Cyrus, when he comes, he's going to allow the people to move back to the land. Remember, Cyrus is actually a type of Messiah in the Old Testament. He's described as God's instrument. So Cyrus is not the Messiah, but he's a type of Messiah. And, and so we, when we look at Scripture, we see things happening the same way they happen today. Like we have political leaders who do good things and bad things. We have, we have all kinds of people with all kinds of motivations, and yet here's God throughout the Old Testament saying, yeah, I made that happen. Like I, I kind of actually orchestrated that whole thing. And there you go. You know, My plans are not your plans which comes out of Isaiah 55. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Let's move on to the Big Daddy, 11 to 14. This is kind of the summation of what we want to talk about. And um, what I want to do is we'll, we'll kind of summarize it, and then I want to go through the Hebrew of 11 because it'll, it'll help us to understand it a little bit better. So 29 verses 11 to 14, if someone's willing to, to read that. I can get it. Cool. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay, thanks. Notice how many times here at the end he's 
He's claiming credit for this. I sent you. I will bring you back. I did this. I will do this. So, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You will call upon me and come pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. So these plans seem to have some conditions attached to it, is the way a lot of people would read this. You get through verse 11 and then 12 and 13, it sounds like there's some conditions for these plans coming to pass. What are those, what are those conditions? Just going off this. Seeking God. Yeah. It seems like there's a little bit of reciprocal effort going on here. What? Yeah, I know. Crazy. <laughs> you, then, you, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. There's a lot of back and forth going on. You guys do this, I do this. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, does any, and I know I'm kind of probing the depths of the scripture knowledge, so don't, don't feel self-conscious in the slightest if you can't pull these things out right away, because I can't. That phrase, all of your heart, when you seek me with all your heart, or when you, when you seek me, you will find me, does that sound familiar to anybody from any other scriptures that they might remember? Psalms, several places in Psalms. Yeah, absolutely. But Jesus, seek, knock, ask, does this sound familiar to that? I think that's Matthew 7, 7. You knock and you will find. The door will be open to you. But there's sort of a give and take there. One action is another action. Almost identical type of language to what we're reading right now. That phrase, all of your heart, that comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, which is a, the most sacred prayer in the, in the Jewish literature. It's called the Shema is Hebrew for hear, listen, the first word of the prayer. But that's, that's where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. heart. So again, the Jewish mind is cluing into these key words. You know, before it was increase, and now it's seek with all your heart, love with all your heart. So there's constant reminders kind of in code to us throughout this letter that God is reminding them of the covenant. He's reminding them of the promises that he's made to them. And he's sort of saying, if you're willing to, the whole reason you're in exile is because you haven't been doing these things, more or less. You haven't been seeking it. You've been kind of doing your own deal. If we can enter back into this agreement that we entered into back with Abraham and Moses and so forth. And then we, we let's take apart 29.11 here. And what, I, what I'll do... The chair is here, bless you, and you would think it would be. I want to point out a couple things that hopefully, my whole reason for doing this is hopefully it sheds a little bit of light, because the way I want to kind of sum up our time is to talk about if any of this influences the way that we perceive God's plans. So my hope is that this will help us do that. So remember Hebrews read from right to left. So we're going to start over here. So for is the I know, for I know. Well, here's the thing. It's the same as many languages. I think Spanish is kind of the same way. If I say trabajo, I work. But if I put a pronoun in front of it, yo trabajo, it adds a little bit of emphasis. It's that, it's that, it's that way in most languages, actually. You can, you can have a verb all by itself, and it's understood who's doing the action. I work, I sleep, I do whatever. 
But if you put the pronoun in front of it, it can add an emphasis, like, and like almost an emphatic, like, I did this, or you did this. And that's exactly what we see here. This is no. This is a pronoun. It's a very emphatic sort of like I or I myself. So he's saying, for I myself emphatically know. There's a lot of there's a lot of proclamation type of language going on here. Sort of thus saith the Lord kind of stuff. So for I know the plans, which we'll talk about that in a minute. For I know the plans which I am making. Here's that same pronoun again. For I myself know the plans which I myself am making or have made to you. This is plural. This is the y'all. So I know the plans which I made for y'all. We can't translate it into English without it sounding very sloppy. But this is plural. This is all plural. This is addressed to the exiles, okay? Neum, neum means proclaims or declares the Lord. So this is all proclamation. Thus saith the Lord, I know the plans that I have for you. And here's, here it gets plans. So three times in one verse we have this word for plans. Plans for shalom. Now you know that word. What's shalom? Peace. Shalom means peace. It's, it's, it's one of those words that's very... Like it carries an entire train of concepts behind it. Um, it's in its most fundamental root. It's it's like a completion, or it's like I have plans. Or the shalom is, is used in a covenant way to say God and His people together in completeness, lacking. Remember when Paul says, you know, lacking no thing. Well, that's kind of what shalom implies. It's like there's no lack of completeness here, contentment, peace. So I have plans for shalom and not for evil. So not for evil. For you. And in this ending, your translations are probably translated, it's kind of a weird. Um, so this is hope, and this is an end. So it's kind of like, it's like you're looking forward towards a hope at the end of the rainbow kind of deal. It's, it's kind of hard to put into good English, but I have plans for a future and a hope would be one way to say that. Now this word for plans, you, you kind of see it, it's, this is one, two, three. This word for plans, if we're going to transliterate it, it's hoshev. That's, it's a, he, basically the way Hebrew works is every, every word is based off of a three syllable, or three consonant, not three syllable, three consonant root. So Hoshev is the basic root. Now this is, this is cool. And I actually, I didn't know this until I started researching this, um, this scripture. But this word appears throughout the Old Testament. The other ways that it's used is like in Psalms. It's used a lot in Psalms where they'll be talking about somebody who is like a master craftsman or a master Engineer, the guy who the guy who helps design the temple is a hoshev. It's basically the participle form of this verb. So we have two two kind of important concepts when we talk about these words. It's it's whenever we talk about hoshev as a as a plan, it's not just like a plan like we would think of it. It's like a calculation. It's a very precise, very methodical like. 
think of like the nerdiest engineer, no one point at me, kind of person. That's one aspect, but you can't separate that from the other aspect, which is one of a master command of artistry. This root actually comes from an ancient Near East word, which means to weave. So it's, there's like a very heavy artisan or, or craftsman-like quality that goes with this word. So you put this all together, this is like, it's somebody who's methodical and, and, and highly calculating. Either if we're using this as a noun or as a verb, it's something that you've calculated through. But at the same time, there's a great deal of creative energy behind it. It's very artistic. And you can't really separate those two concepts out from one another. So when, we, when, when he's saying, I know the plans that I have for you, you can see how that kind of, we lose a lot of the magic of what's really going on here. What he's saying is, I know these like masterfully creative plans that I have meticulously worked out for you, says the Lord. So that's what we that's kind of what we lose when we don't when we don't have access to the original text. Now, something that the Jewish mind would click into with this word, Hoshev, or in this sense, Machashabah, which is the plan, the noun form. Remember in Genesis 1, the creation and the the imagery of God hovering over the depths, over sort of over nothingness. And out of that comes all the plants and the animals and the people and all this thing. Well, the creative, the creative language was very heavy into the covenant language as well. So now we have this, this word, which is this very creative but very precise sort of thing, saying like, in the same way that I was creative with the beginning of all this, I am still being creative. That's the association that's being drawn with this word. When we talk about when we talk about prophecy, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, we want to. There's a couple terms that we want to be familiar with. One is, I apologize if this is so low. One is called type. One is called fulfillment. This kind of phrasing is what we call a type. So, in other words, what we're saying is this. This language pops up other places in Scripture. It's not just a one-time thing. And so we call that a type. Remember Isaiah 55, it says, God talks about his plans. He uses the exact same word, Hoshem. And he says, he says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, my plans above your plans, my thoughts above your thoughts. It's the same exact word. So we see this type. And also in Psalm 40, Listen, listen to this. This is in Psalm 40. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made, that's the word right there, who has made the Lord his trust. He has not turned to the proud or lapsed into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, same word, and your thoughts toward us. So this is a type, this kind of language. It appears over and over. There's always an essence of something new. Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about the new covenant in other parts of their, of their letters. This kind of language is always associated with the new covenant the same way it's associated with the old. The reason I bring all this up is because 
we've talked about how this is a letter addressed to specific people at a specific point in history. This, this plural ending, basically, in the most direct setting was to the exiles. I have plans for y'all. But we want to take this, we want to understand that this is a type of language. The other thing is with fulfillment. We can have, when, when we talk about prophecy, basic definition of prophecy is not fortune telling. Basic definition of prophecy is truth. So anybody who, who proclaims truth is by definition a prophet. So you don't have to be a, you don't have to be somebody who, who foretells the future to be considered a prophet, even in even in their world. Well, when we talk about any kind of prophecy, we want to talk about fulfillment, and we we, we say things like single fulfillment or double fulfillment or multiple fulfillment. And basically, what we're saying there is, it was this prophecy meant for one people at one time? That's a single fulfillment. Maybe like for like, let me think of an example here. There's a verse that's used in Matthew that also comes from the Old Testament, and it's, it's where Rachel is weeping for her children. So in the Old Testament, we have this scene where Rachel, character in the Old Testament, is weeping for her children. Well, then when we get to Matthew, and it talks about the, the execution of all the, the babies under Herod, two years old and, and younger, and that same verse is brought out, Rachel weeping for her children. Well, Rachel's been dead for like 800 years when that's written. He's actually, he's not talking about the real Rachel weeping over what's going on. It's a fulfillment. It's a double fulfillment. It happened once in history, but now it's sort of happening again. Well, that's a double fulfillment of prophecy. It happened two distinct times. Multiple fulfillment's the same thing, but it's, it's something that applies to maybe people over all generations, or it applies to a specific people over a long length of time. So, we've already established this is a type. And now what we need to decide is, can we, can we, with some kind of confidence, say that this is a multiple fulfillment? In other words, does this apply to us? Or does it, did this apply to these people at this specific time? So before I give you my opinion, and that's, keep in mind, that's all that it is. I mean, just because I know some of this stuff doesn't give my opinion necessarily more weight than yours. So I want to know from you, what do you think? Do you think that this applies to us? And if so, how would you make that, how would you make that jump in your mind to say that it does? Um, think of God in, in context and character. So his character being consistent where at no point in time from the beginning to whatever the end would look like is you be like, well, now I am an angry God, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So in the same character of choices and free will, I think you have fulfillment of, kind of like you said, the 90%, 10% thing. Think of the things that go on in our world today that we would look at in a similar fashion that they would, you know, same things around Jesus' time himself, where God's character comes through the same. And what is it, Babylon this time, Rome this time? But character comes through, so I guess I would take that into account in thinking that there is at least some essence of God's character for us. It's about Him for us, rather than written directly for us. Like it was to them, but as a reference to God's character, that we can have as a takeaway for us today. Right? Okay. Does that makes any sense? It does. So I mean, it, 
from what I'm hearing is correct, it sounds like you would point to how God's, basically God doesn't change in the sense of the things that he has promised, he, he's promised. Constant. We have dependable characteristics of God that we know have always been there or will always be there. Um, I agree with that. I think that it's descriptive of the character of God. Um, it also, to me, speaks of uh, the, the paradox of life that is a perennial struggle of understanding um, the ways in which God's plans interact with our own responsibility um, because they're, they are in exile because of their rebellion, but they were led there by God, mm-hmm. and he will bring them back, but it's also dependent upon their turning to him, and I think that that uh, that situation is is descriptive of of what is still struggled with when we try to conceive of what it looks like to come into relationship with God at any time, um, in any situation. So for that reason, I would say that it is a more overarching prophetic word, or just describing the character of God, the character of humanity, and our plight. That's great. Yeah. Any other any other input on this? Is this a is this a picture of God's covenant? He, it's kind of like the the uh, vassal treaties of the old in the Old Testament, where I will take care of you if you do certain things. I will keep you on the land, and if you do certain things, I will keep you on the. They've now violated that covenant. Uh, I'm curious if if uh, Jeremiah isn't telling them that the, God will keep you there as long as you do these things that he mentions. I uh, have children, get yourself plugged into this society there, and you'll stay there for a certain length of time. So is the covenant reestablished for the land in Babylon, or or is that, am I thinking out out of context here? Well, it's sort of, the way I've seen it described, and it's a a good question to bring out, the way I've seen it described is that the covenant is actually traveling with the people. Right. So it's not that Babylon is now the recipient of the covenant. It could have been any place. It's that the people of God are still the recipient. Right. But they just happen to be living in exile. When they come back to the land, the, the assumption is the covenant travels with them right. back. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, but I think some people would probably debate that, though. Yeah. You know. Oh, but, sure. But that's what I've generally understood to be the, the case. Julian, you had something. No. I'll play devil's advocate. I guess. Please do. I think. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> I think the earlier parts. Um, what is it? Five through whatever. Five to. Nine are can be carried over to everything, but then I feel like eleven and that stuff in particular is just so specific that it applies to just that situation. And why? Why do you think that? Why do you um, make that distinction there? Well, I think five. Well, yeah, I guess it's all. It just it seems like such a unique situation, and I feel like a lot of times. Um, I know I. As Christians, we talk about how we're in exile in America, and we're not really. And so, 
Like what? I don't know. I feel like what they're facing. Are you exile from Ireland? I mean, where are we? How far back do we take that? Yeah. yeah. That's uh, a good point, though. Sorry. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what my point is anymore. I think I lost it. Uh, <laughs> but just, um, it just feels so specific to me um, that it, I guess you can take, I could apply this generally, but reading it, it just feels so specific and so specialized for this that I feel like I couldn't, for my life right now, I couldn't apply it and say, oh, I'm in exile. So clearly he's talking to me. Well, and that's, you know, one thing that we, I think we forget as Christians who, I mean, and this doesn't, this probably, hopefully this doesn't sound critical, but um, we are very focused on our New Testaments. I mean, we, we read a lot of Paul, we read a lot of the Gospels. That's not bad stuff. One of the reasons why I, I like, like is very understated, I love presenting this kind of stuff is because the entire New Testament was written in the context of the Old and if, if the more that we can understand about these covenant languages, the things that they were cluing into, so Julian, you're absolutely right, and I think that we as Christians forget to apply it to the direct recipients before we start applying it to everything else, like us. So it, to notice that, hey, this is real specific, and this is exactly, this sounds like this is really addressed to a specific group of people. Well, yeah, it is. But that's, once we accept that, that should be where we start. But once we sort of accept that, hey, this was written, this didn't fall in King James English from the sky in 1600 AD, and it all automatically applies to us except the bad parts. <laughs> once we get past that, we realize this is historical as much as it is spiritual. Then we say, okay, let's look at the type of writing. Let's look at these key words that the people, even the people who originally got the letter would have understood certain things that we don't know to clue into right away. This, this language that they're using, this plans and increase and these in your heart, seek with all your heart and these kinds of things that Jesus would, would repeat centuries after this. Isaiah repeated it two centuries before. So in a sense, Jeremiah is repeating his words. We have these themes, these types that appear over and over and over again. And so maybe we can say that gives us a basis to say that if Jesus repeated some of the same language, well, maybe that still applies in the New Covenant, which we now live under. Do you have something to add? Well, I kind of have a question, and I don't know. It's somewhat related, but kind of off on another tangent, too. Like, if this is a continuous fulfillment, do you know, or does anyone know, how a modern Jewish community or synagogue might interpret it? Or I'm just thinking about some of the socio-political implications of No, and in fact, I had, what is it? I think it was a year ago that I had uh, my class in uh, Messianic Judaism. And they talked, they talked quite a bit about sort of the different Jewish communities that are around today and where they, how they kind of perceive current events and what they're looking forward to. And as, I tell you what, as fractured as I think, sort of, this is my Catholic coming out, but as fractures I think Protestantism is with all our different denominations and everything else. Boy, look at Judaism. I mean, it is, it is across, it's all over the place. Yeah. And it, it really is. And you've got, you've got um, a very wide range of opinions on, some people are still looking for Messiah. Some, you know, the very conservative Jewish communities are still expecting a Messiah to come. They, they still hold to the covenant 
of Moses. Um, you know, David, they're still looking for that. Other communities really have sort of become secularized to the point where they don't think anything was ever really promised to them. That all of this only applied to one people at one time, and the fact that they're in Israel now is sort of just blind luck. It's, it ranges the full spectrum in between those two perspectives, really. So, I guess with the creation of the state of Israel, would that be somewhat of a fulfillment of coming out of exile or having a place? Or? Depends on who you ask. I think, I think the majority of Jewish, non-secularized Jewish culture would view that as a fulfillment of, of a promise, that, you know, kind of continuing on with the covenant promises. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think it's interesting that um, God says in 70 years old, like, we leave you guys, but, you know, how those people want you to be alive then? You know, so I think it also, I mean, it doesn't apply to us specifically, but I think the idea of fulfillment and the type specific, you know, joy that God can give us on a daily basis for those people, because, like, in 70 years, you know, I might be dead. You know, those people might be dead. So it's like this idea that one day our people will be you know, free from ex- exile, but we'll never see that. So that's like, that speaks volumes to me. Mm-hmm. Because like, those people won't ever, ever see what freedom looks like, but they only see this piece of scripture and what Jeremiah is saying to them. Yeah. That's interesting to me. That, you've hit on a really good thing there, actually, that um, if you remember back in Exodus when they're, when they're wandering the desert for 40 years, 40 years was kind of Jewish code for a generation. So basically, the implication, when, he, when God tells them that you're going to be in the desert for 40 years, his kind of implication is the people who have disobeyed me are not going to enter the promised land. Because 40 years was a long enough space of time for an adult male or female that you're not going to be alive. That's why it's, so, it's such a big deal that the two individuals who do get to go into the land, they make a big deal about that. And Moses himself gets to see it from Mount Nebo. So 70 years is actually code for two generations or a lifetime. So what you hit on is exactly right. That's the Jewish mind would have clicked into that. 70 years, I am not going to get to go back. My kids will, which is why God is saying, increase now, because this promise is for your kids. It's for your, the people who come after you. It's not, but you yourself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with you and I hope to bless you in Babylon, but you're not going home. That's why these prophets are getting, these, probably what these prophets were telling them was, oh, we'll be back in a week. Like, God's, God's promises are for good and not for evil. God's going to take us out of Babylon and get us back as soon as he possibly can. And God says, I didn't send those people. Like, I'm telling you 70 years, that's reality. I want you to accept that and to build your life in preparation for that moment. Remember in Hebrews where it goes in chapter 11 where it goes to the heroes of the faith and it's all these Old Testament people and it says all of these people were striving after something that they never saw. You remember that? Where it says all of these people because they never saw Christ in person. The, the entire purpose of the covenants was to foreshadow Christ. He says all of these people from Abraham all the way down the line, Moses, David, only saw like a, 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 like a mere reflection or, or a, sort of a, an aftertaste of what was coming. And yet they still live lives of faith in God. So that's another reason why we study the Old Testament is because we see that these people who have really not a very clear idea of what's coming still live lives of, of hope. That's where it says, I'm giving you a hope and a future. 
we see that language again repeated. Well, what I want to do, I don't want to, my promise was an hour, and we are right at that point. So here's, I just want to list, hopefully no one is furiously scribbling it down in Hebrew. As I, I was going to see if you could read it in Hebrew. I can. I actually, um, I have a, a um, Hebrew. How about Hebrew? Yeah. I have the Hebrew. I will write it back up, and I will read it to you. No, but it doesn't. It can be later. I just wanted to. No, I would love to do that because um, you can see me struggle through it. I'm much better interpreting and reading it than I am out loud. So, okay, I'm going to list one, two, three, four, five things that I noticed going through this scripture, but also going through other scriptures. So Isaiah 55, Psalm 40. Exodus, Genesis, and then going all the way through Jesus. When Jesus talks about, remember Jesus is sitting down with his disciples shortly before the Last Supper, and he says, and he says, um, you know, in my father's, in the many mansions sort of thing, which it's not actually mansions, we're not going to get into that. He says, you know, my father is preparing a place for you, and if you follow me, you can get to that place. It's in John 13, I think. All kinds of significance packed into that, but God's plans. And he's speaking specifically to disciples, but do we doubt that he's speaking to us as well when he says, my father is preparing a place for you, you know? So looking through the Old and New Testaments, here's a few things that I noticed that are similar. When we talk about a type, God's plans for us, here are the things that always seem to be similar when those scriptures come up. And the first is kind of interesting. Patience. 70 years. Psalm... 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. It seems like God is sort of trying to make it very clear to us that he is not a gumball machine. We put a quarter in and twist the knob and out comes plans. That's not... For whatever reason... I just made that up too. For whatever reason, the patience is important. The second is that God hears us. It's always... A commonality. He says, Psalm 40, he inclined to me and he heard my cry. But we've just read in Jeremiah, it says, You will seek me and I will hear you. You will come to me, I will respond. So God responds. The third, they require action on our part. And this is this is common all the way from Genesis through what Jesus has to say in Paul. It says can't just go through life and assume that God is taking care of you. You need to be seeking him. It says with all your heart. Remember when the, the lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, what are the two greatest commandments? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. That comes from the Shema, Deuteronomy. And he says, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Well, those are not those are not passive things. You're seeking, you're knocking, you're asking. Your love is by no means a passive activity. So it requires action. The fourth that we talked about was creative energy. That comes from hashab, or hoshev, this verb that we've been talking about for plan. This is a, a calculated plan, but it's highly creative. So there's this creative energy that goes into God's plans for his people. And then the last is a lot of times there seems to be a physical timeline in our reference that goes with these plans. That it seems like God has, has been so meticulous that it's not just this nebulous sort of thing, well, one day 
I want you to do this or that. There actually seems to be some sort of, I don't think this one probably holds 100% of the time the way these other ones do, but a lot of times there does seem to be some kind of a timeline. And that's usually when we're talking about Israel. Okay, so I'm just going to throw out what you probably think I already think, which is that I do think that this is a type of promise that is carried through one covenant to the next. Because it appears throughout the Bible, it's so pervasive. So if we think, or we know from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, that we live in a new covenant, and Jesus himself said, I have come that the kingdom might be seen and known once the new covenant might be realized. So if we believe that, that this is sort of a continuation of God's work that we are now a part of, I don't, I don't, there, there was something called replacement theology, which basically says that Israel was in the Old Testament, and now we are God's people in the New Testament. It's anybody who believes. I think that kind of dumbs it down and oversimplifies. I think that Israel was the chosen people and will always be the chosen people. But I think like, like it's in the New Testament, it says, well, we've been grafted on to that. And because we live in the New Covenant, that's now been extended to us as well as Israel. So anyone who comes to, through faith it's now part of this new promise and this new covenant. There's no reason to think that this language doesn't apply in exactly like you said. Like God's plan, God never changes. So if God intends this for his people, we are his people. I think where we get in trouble is when we think that these plans refer to prosperity in this life. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's where we get hung up because it's that 10% that's off is... God wants prosperity for you now. Does he? Did you pick this because of the Occupy Wall Street protests? No. <laughs> no, but I knew that you'd probably be thinking about that. I did not. But it applies. But it does, doesn't it? I mean, is there anything that this doesn't apply to? As, as people of God, we the same way that God worked through political situations and uprisings and, you know, do we... Do we really think that he's not doing that now, that Jesus comes and something is disinterested in the way things work around here? I think he's very interested. And so I think that we, as we see God's plans for our lives in a personal way or as a community, I mean, I had a professor, and I don't know why it never occurred to me, but this professor pointed this out to me, and I had to go home and sort of stew on it for days, and I think I kind of got depressed over it. It's like, here are, here are all these promises to God's people. Well, how many people in the first century were thrown the lines? Because they were Christians. How many people were mistreated because they were God's people? I mean, the Jews have had an easy time, right? No. But we, we misunderstand God's plans. God's plan for us is to have what? A hope and a future. Well, we have that. And we continue to have that. We will always have that so long as we believe that that is what God has brought to us. And remember, Jesus focused not on not in our prosperity, but he focused on bringing the kingdom to earth. And what that meant was, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. It means you're, you're, you're involved with your community. You're, you are bringing God's perspective, you are bringing God's work down to a place that needs it. That's God's plan for you. And that is God's plan for us. I'll, I'll just wrap this up by saying that I, and this is just me, this is where I'm going to make the distinction that I do believe God has specific plans for me and you as individuals. I believe that we can, we can seek that out. Um, in the same way that we seek out God's plans any other way, through prayer, um, fasting,
Jesus encouraged his disciples to fast regularly. But we have to approach it from the mindset of God's plan is always going to fit the general type. God's plan is never going to be for you, for you to be super rich and retire to a mansion and never talk to anybody. That goes against the character of God. There's no reason God would ever want that for you. But if it's consistent with God's character, remember in college, the two things that people were always praying about was, what am I going to be, what am I going to do after college, and who am I going to marry? That was the extent, more or less, of people seeking God's plans. And hey, you know what? Those aren't bad things to be praying about. I mean, those, those are both major things that will influence the way that you live your life. But I guess where I'm sort of landing now with this whole plans thing is that I, I wonder how much God cares what I do for a living yeah. as opposed to am I bringing God's kingdom to earth with, with what I do for a living? Like, am I, am I excelling at whatever I'm doing in the sense of bringing God's plans to fruition? I believe God specifically calls people to ministry. And I believe that God specifically calls us to certain things throughout our life. But if we're not seeking, we're probably not going to clue into it the way that we would if, if we were. That back and forth motion of seeking and asking and knocking and all these things. So at the very minimum, if we're just going off scripture, not Steve's opinion, I believe that there is, there is a plan for us that carries through plans for good, not for evil. But that plan may not look the way that people are telling us it's going to look in this life. So, any, any closing comments with all this? I don't want to dominate the conversation. You know. Is it, is it um, it's my understanding that when they came back to uh, the promised land or the Palestine or whatever you call mm -hmm. it, um, not all of them came back according to right. Ezra and Nehemiah. Right. So they had plugged themselves into the economy of uh, of Babylon, which changed hands uh, to to uh, Cyrus, mm -hmm. and uh, it seems to me that there is a there is always a constant reference to the Exodus out of out of Egypt, but never they never seem to talk about the the uh, captivity in the same sense that that uh, they did about, about Egypt. And, and it, I wonder if it's because they were, they got there, Ezekiel says he was crying his eyes out at the Khyber River because he, he missed the temple and he knew he could never see it again. So he put a new temple in, in his book and so it seems to me that um, the Jews coming back were just those that maybe had a smitten of remembrance of what it was to be like, but they were always hounded by all kinds of other people, Silabut and the rest of them were always after them to compromise. And I'm, I'm just curious if, if that isn't what, we're, what we see in, in our own lives, we, we are constantly being uh, bombarded by the world around us. And, and uh, um, we, we have to continue to focus on, on the, the patience and God ears and, 
and the reaction, the action that we take, and the energy we put into it, and, and understanding the timeline. And what you point out is actually, if, if we if we say that the people coming back were maybe a little apathetic or a little, right. they weren't quite as excited as they were 70 years ago, kind of thing. Right. And actually, we read I can't remember if it's Ezra or Nehemiah, but um, it's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. I should probably remember where it is. But they come back to the, rebuilding the temple, and, and one of them, like the people are going and marrying these foreign wives, or doing all the things they're not supposed to be doing, basically. And here they just got back, and they're already breaking the law and doing things they're not supposed to do. Well, it's either Ezra or Nehemiah, he, he's grabbing people by the backs of their yeah. head, and like punching them. <laughs> like it's in your Bible, it's pretty cool. And he's just like so irritated, he's so fed up with these people. It's like, we just brought you guys back, and here you're already screwing up, we haven't been here like a month. Yeah. He's just punching them, he's like, get in line, you know? And we, you want to see where the Pharisees started, it's right there. Right. They, they became more and more paranoid over time that they were going to get exiled again. Oh, yeah. So we get to, there's all these political things that happen in the meantime, but we get to Jesus' day, and here's these guys who are like, if we read like Matthew or, or Luke, ultra-legalistic. Well, we have to understand why they were that way. There's a reason why they were like that. They were so paranoid that this was going to happen again. So, yeah, yeah it, it sort of flipped. And Rome was... Rome was there every day in in Jesus' time. In fact, the the Sadducees made a, a sacrifice twice a day to the Roman Empire in the temple. And according to Josephus, it seems to me that, like you say, they were terrified. Can't and and they were always looking to Jesus. Are you going to throw the Romans out of here? And that's really what they wanted. And I, I think it's it's interesting to see see how this plays out in, in your analysis of uh, this verse. You talk about the the Pharisees, and well, I'm going to have this pray here, wrap up. But talk about the Pharisees. The the way they sort of officially got started was so that we had the Persians, and then the Greeks kind of come in. And there was this, they became more and more sort of oppressive and telling the Jews more and more how to worship and sort of really butting into their religion. And they were afraid, they were always afraid that this exile was going to happen again to them. <laughs> so we had, end up with this, this guy named Antiochus IV comes into the temple and he takes a pig with him into the temple. Yeah. And he takes this pig, and remember Jews aren't very fond of pork, <laughs> set this pig on the altar and sacrifice it to God, which is like the ultimate oh, sort of... Boy desecration of the whole thing. When you read in Revelation where it, it talks about this this like great sort of desecration. It's, it's actually that brings desolation. It's actually recalling that scene that they were all yeah. familiar with. Yeah. So well let's let's close out and on a little over time and then um, if you have additional questions or you want me to reconstruct this Hebrew monstrosity and read it for you, I'm happy to do that. So anybody willing to pray for us? This, out. this is the easy part. Do it. Lord, we thank you for this time just so we can discuss the roots of our faith and what it means to be in relationship with you, God. That there's not a lot of things we can prove, Lord, but we want to latch on to something. We know that you are good, and we thank you for being good to us in our lives and giving us hope for the future. And we just want to learn more look back into the scriptures and find more understanding and there's so much depth that we can we can hardly contain it but we want to go after as much as we can 
thank you for this time and thanks for Steve's teaching and my prayer. Amen. So two quick things. Um, I've got over here if, for the one or two people who might be interested in it. This is um, basically when you kind of get to the level where you can start to pick out individual words, and you can do this in English. There's internet tools all over the place to help you do this. Say you wanted to research this word in greater detail. We go, you find what that word is, and then there's there's resources, like entire books that just have individual Hebrew roots and words, and they'll go through and they'll talk about every single time that that word appears other places in Scripture. They'll talk about all the possible ranges of meaning and what this word could possibly mean. So, I just thought I'd put this off for the word to be focused on today. If you're interested in it, I'll just leave it up here. The other thing is, in a few weeks, probably doing another class like this, if you have specific topics, I kind of, I have some in mind, but if you have something specific that you'd like for us to talk about, let me know and maybe we can make it happen. So let me know if you have specific ideas, otherwise I'll take us where I want to go. Um, thanks for, thanks for being here. It's been really fun. So hopefully this was helpful. I'll reconstruct this guy.